Great Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, hear God's word with us this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are the whole of Achaia, a grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are new, uh, who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, is for your comfort and your salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for you know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on to God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he delivers us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help by us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Have you ever studied the life of Charles Spurgeon? You know one of two things. You know, this was one of the greatest preachers to ever step foot in the pulpit, but you also know he was a man who lived a very, very, very difficult life. And I'm thankful for both. Because yes, his preaching was so biblically based and so gospel-centered that, that when you listen to Spurgeon speak, it's, it's almost like he takes you through the, the throne room of heaven. You're able to see how big a God we serve. But also, when you study Spurgeon's life and see how much he suffered, what, what's so strange about his life is his sufferings are able to do the same thing and sometimes even more. Yes, he suffered and he suffered greatly. Spurgeon speaks of his own life, of the afflictions that he incurred, the, the sharp pains that he had to endure through, through gout and, and kidney disease. On top of that, there was a downgrade controversy that was going on, in which he was ridiculed and his name slammed in the papers. And on top of that was the many friends he lost because of this controversy, in which Spurgeon said that, that if it wasn't because of the hand of God touching him and pulling him out, he would have surely drowned in that controversy. And then on top of that were the incredible dark seasons of life that Spurgeon had to go through. Seasons in which he would cry uncontrollably, not knowing why he was crying in the first place. These dark seasons would come and overwhelm him. He would have anxiety and panic attacks. And then on top of that, if that wasn't enough, he had to wa watch his wife suffer with incredible illness in which they botched the surgery in which she was placed in a wheelchair for the majority of their marriage. Here's a man who suffered greatly. Which is somewhat surprising. 
Because as you look at Spurgeon's life, you, you see how the Holy Spirit has used him so incredibly much through his preaching. So you would think that a powerful God who can transform lives through preaching would protect him from his suffering. But God didn't. Because God had a purpose for his suffering. Many purposes. But one of the purposes for, for Charles Spurgeon's suffering was to, to strengthen his church Again, strengthened his church just like his preaching did. His suffering was able to do the same thing. There's a whole entire book written about the heartaches and the, and the sorrows that Spar- Spurgeon had to go through. And as you're reading this book, you're, you're, you're greatly encouraged. I know it sounds strange to pick up a book and read about the sorrows of somebody else and be encouraged by them. But this is exactly what takes place because as you're reading this book, you're realizing that, yes, that you're not the only one who suffers in this life, but other people do as well. As you're reading this book, you learn that your God is still God, even when we go through the heartaches of life. And as you're going through this book, you also realize that God's grace is sufficient to pull us through the heartaches of this life. You see, me in my own life, I've been encouraged more by, by Spurgeon's sorrows and his heartache than I have been by his, and his, by his sermons. And man, his sermons are great. Friends, but it teaches us that not one tear that, that fell from Spurgeon's cheeks was wasted. Not, not one heartache or sorrow that was not used by his God to strengthen his church. In fact, I like to imagine Spurgeon finally making it into heaven and, and him asking God, why did I have to suffer so much? And God taking Spurgeon just to the, to the outer banks of, 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 of heaven and letting him peer over down into earth and him pointing to, to all the people that were greatly encouraged by Spurgeon's sorrows. He says, yes, that person was encouraged and saw how big a God I was through your heartache. And that person and that person and thousands and millions of people who have been encouraged by, by Spurgeon's sorrows. And I imagine at that time Spurgeon looking back to his God with tears falling, tears of joy now falling from his cheeks, saying, man, you are an incredible God. That you didn't waste one, one tear that fell to the ground, but you used it to strengthen your church. I imagine him bursting out in praise, turning and saying, man, you're incredible that you can use my heartache and my sorrow to build your church. And I imagine Spurgeon turning to his God and saying, yes, I get it now. Man, it was, it was worth it. It was worth going through the heartache and the pain because of the fruit and the harvest that it produced. See, we serve a God who can use our heartache and our trial not only to conform us to his image, but he uses our heartache and our trials to conform other people to the image of God. This morning I want to talk to you on the topic of how God uses our trials for our blessing and the blessing of others, but before I do, let's turn back and praise this God that we serve. God, I am thankful for the opportunity today to speak of your greatness. God, I am thankful that we we can marvel together at a big God who uses our pain, our sorrows, our tribulations, our anxiety, our depression, not only for our good to conform us to see that you are the God of all comfort, but you use it to build into other people's lives as well.
So God, this morning, would you conform our ears to listen to your word, that you would conform our hearts to become more like you, that we would be willing and be dependent upon your, your power through our weakness. God, let us see that, that, yes, it is a blessing to share in the sufferings of our, our good Savior, Christ. God, bless your church. Be with us this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning, we have the opportunity to dive into a new book. We have the opportunity to dive into the second letter uh, that, that is written to the, to the Corinthians. And yet, 2 Corinthians is kind of a misnomer. This was not Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, but this is actually Paul's fourth letter. Paul had to write four different times to the Corinthian church because of, of how sinful they were. He, he had to write four different times, so, so we get two of the letters that are captured in God's sovereignty in the canon, but two of those letters are, are, are lost, and, and yet we were told about them in these two letters that he wrote. So this is actually Paul's fourth letter. And remember, as we went through the book of 1 Corinthians together, that here is the church in Corinth, and we can know that Corinth is kind of described in three different ways. First of all, it was big in its population. Corinth was a uh, port city, so it's the gateway to the east and to the west, so there's many people traveling through, and because of that, it has a large population. So it's big in its population, but it's also big in its diversity. Because there were so many people coming in, there's a ton of different people from different cultures and different religions kind of coming in, and, and there's a diversity of wealth as well. As people came in, there's the, the richest of rich living because it's a port city and trade's taking place. People were able to make an enormous amount of money there, but at the same time, they had to have day laborers who were making pennies. So you have the poorest of poors living next to the richest of rich within Corinth. It's also, I'll add one in there, Corinth was also a beautiful city. It was big in its beauty. There's the temples, and, and, and there's, there's the, the, the Olympic Games taking place here, the Itmus Games, and, and there's this beauty of this city, and then it was big in its sin. Here was a city that was known for its debauchery. Here was a city that was so big on its sin that its, its reputation began to spread wide of all the sexual immorality that took place because of all the, the nonsense that was taking place, because of all the sin, the, 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 the people who were tricking people in business. This place was known for its sin, and sadly, the church of Corinth began to gain that same reputation. In fact, we saw it in 1 Corinthians. Here is a church that, that really was big in their sin as well. 1 Corinthians told us that this was a divided church. It's a church that's divided in so many different sectors, and these sectors were fighting amongst themselves. Again, they're fighting on economic lines. We learn as, as they were taking communion, they were taking communion, and the rich were able to get off work early, so they're partaking on the inside of the house as they're gathering for the church and they're getting drunk and they're having great meals and, and then on the outskirts, those who had actually had to work would show up late and they weren't able to get in so now they're hungry. There's no food left because they've been eating it all day. You have the richest of rich having the greatest of times and the poorest of poors starving on the outsides of this church. It was a messed up church. Beyond that, they were taking each other to court here was a church that brothers and sisters in the body of Christ were fighting so much amongst themselves that they began to take each other to court, and, and the rich ones were able to pay off the judges, so there's corruption taking place there. And then on top of that, the worst yet, was there's this man within the church who was having this relationship with his stepmom, and, and instead of the church coming in and stopping this man, 
they were taking pride in it. It was a messed up church. And it's in this sin that we see Paul now having to go to them and write an enormous amount of letters, visit them often, and he did so in a tone that he wished he didn't have to use. It started back when Paul begins to write 1 Corinthians, but yet because they don't correct themselves, we see Paul now having to go back to them on his way to Macedonia. He stops into the church of Corinth to correct them here on his first visit, and he calls this visit, chapter 2, a painful visit. It's painful. It's creating some tension. He's having to get into people's face and say, what are you guys doing? And he plans to come back to them after he visits Macedonia. On his way back, he wants to visit them again, but for some reason, he chooses not to. Some believe the tension was so high, he thought, maybe I'll let it cool off for a while. But somehow he gets another report along the way because they're still sinning. They're still corrupt in their ways. So now he writes them his third letter, which is right before this one. And we see it in chapter 2. He says this is a severe letter. Severe letter. Again, he's speaking in a tone he didn't want to speak in. He's trying to get these people to change and transform their ways. But, man, they're, they're not changing. And this is creating tension again. So much tension that their small group within Corinth is using this as an opportunity to come now sweep in and, and kind of propel their influence on the church of Corinth. They're saying, hey, this church is kind of fighting with Paul, the one who planted this church, so we're going to kind of squeeze in here, kind of put our influence on it. So we see 2 Corinthians, his fourth letter, as a defense to this group who is throwing all sorts of inf- uh, insults his way for the sole purpose, again, to sway the church away from Paul's influence, to, to listen to their influence so they can kind of insert this false gospel, this kind of Judaizer kind of way of thinking that, yes, we believe in Jesus, but it's the Jerusalem law, and we got to follow that as well. So this letter matters. Paul's defense He's trying to get them to not only understand that, yes, he's an apostle, but he's got to get them to understand the true gospel and hold tightly to it. Again, this is this defense. They're saying all sorts of things against him. Saying, hey, he's, Paul's not an apostle because he's kind of taking this money that he's asking to give to the poor and he's putting it in his own pockets. They're saying, hey, Paul's not an apostle because he doesn't speak with the rhetoric that we do and the kind of the fluency and, and speaking with flair. He doesn't do it, so he's not an apostle. He's not an apostle. What we'll see this morning is because here is a man who suffered. And because he suffered, shows that he can't be an apostle. After all, if he, if he was an apostle, then God would be next to his side and protect him. So, so the fact that he's suffering, that they were saying, the small group was saying, hey, because he's suffering, it shows that he's not really true of God, that God's actually mad at him and angry. Saying he's not an apostle. Because if God was close to him, Why would God allow Paul to suffer so greatly? Notice their thinking. Their thinking again is saying, hey, if you are a a man of God, you, you shouldn't have to suffer. Humanity shouldn't have to suffer, especially those who are close to God, because again, God would protect them if he did. If he's a good God, he would protect his people. 
That's the line of argument that was coming their way, that humanity should not have to go through the troubles and trials of this life, especially those who are close to God. What's so strange is this influence has kind of infiltrated the American church as well. Well, We too have, have bought into this idea that we should not have to suffer, specifically those who have God on our side. We bought into this idea that, yes, if a good God, why would he allow his children to suffer? We don't think that the American church, God's people, should have to go through rough times. How do I know that to be the case? And just look at how we react when tribulation shows up at our door. And we shake our fist at God. We get angry and mad. Just look at... When, when trials and tribulation comes into our life, how quickly our faith is shaken. Just look at how upset we get when we go through seasons of darkness. We have bought into this lie that we as humanity should not have to suffer. So this morning, we're, we're going to have to work really hard to listen to Paul work really hard to, to allow our hearts to actually believe what he is going to tell us to be true. Because Paul, what he is going to tell us this morning is countercultural. Paul is going to say, not only should we suffer, but it is necessary for the people of God to suffer. That not only should we suffer, but we are going to abundantly suffer, and that is actually for our benefits. Look what Paul says in verse 5 with me this morning because it's going to be uh, the beginning of what we look at here. He says in verse 5, he says, for, we, uh, for as we share abundantly, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. As you read those words, we've got to pause. Take them in. Paul, Paul is telling us that we, we have to share in the sufferings of Christ and abundantly at that. I don't know if you, you, you studied Jesus' life, hopefully you have, but how much has that man had to suffer? Jesus suffered greatly. Now Paul says we're going to share in those sufferings and abundantly at that? See, see, for Paul, he understood that, yes, believers of Jesus will have to suffer. It's just the, the matter of fact. He says it so matter of factly. He goes about it nonchalantly. He just says, hey, we are going to have to share in the sufferings of Christ. But here's the thing. Paul understood that this was for his benefit. Here's the thing. Paul understood that this was, was a blessing. In fact, this word share, it's an important word. I, I don't want to make too much of it because it's not in the Greek test, text but it has been inserted here on purpose in the English text to get us to understand that, yes, Paul believes that these are a blessing, that we get to share. This word share, it's a benefit. There's something that we partake, and it's, it's a good thing that we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. See, Paul understood that being able to share in the sufferings of Christ was a benefit because it's through the sufferings of Christ that God was able to, to conform him to his image that through his sufferings, he was able to get to know his Christ in a different way. You study Paul's theology, it's, it's, you study Paul's theology in scripture about suffering, there's, there's something we learn that, 
that he actually thought it was a blessing and he longed to be able to share in the sufferings of Christ. Just look at his words in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Catch this next part. And I want to share in his sufferings. Becoming like Christ in his death to, to somehow to be able to obtain the power of the resurrection. But, but catch those words. He, he says, I want to know Christ and share in his sufferings. See, Paul understood that it was through these sufferings that he was able to, to know Christ in a greater way. Paul understood that it was through his sufferings that God was using those sufferings in his own life to conform him to his image. So yes, there is this sense that he was able to get closer to his Savior by sharing in the sufferings of Christ. In fact, we see it in Colossians chapter, th- uh, chapter 1 in which Paul turns to, to the, the church of, 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 when he's talking to the Colossians, he says, I, mean, I, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And this idea of sufferings being a benefit for the believers of Jesus is, is very common throughout the New Testament. That's why James would say, consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kind, consider it pure joy. What are you, what are you speaking about, James? You, you, you mean it's a, it's a joy to, to go through trials in this life? Peter would say the same thing. Peter writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't, don't think it's strange when the trial comes your way. It's going to be normal. Then he says, next part, but rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. You've seen what the New Testament writers are trying to get us to understand? Rejoice. Consider it pure joy that you get the privilege to share in Christ's suffering. What the writers are wanting us to see is they consider it a pure joy because they saw a divine hand behind every suffering that took place in our life. That this divine hand was bringing these sufferings and trials into our life for our benefit. So get this, this is important. If the sufferings of this life are for our benefit, then a good God, a good God will not protect us away from the sufferings, but rather he will protect us through the sufferings. You hear that? If if God is good, then a good God will not protect us away from the trials and sufferings of this life, but actually will use them in our life to conform us to our image. That's a radical change of our mind when we think about the trials and tribulations that come our way. Because the argument again says that if a good God, he would protect his people, he would protect his children. But what Paul is saying here is is because he is a good God, then definitely he will allow his children, he will allow his children to suffer. And now in the rest of the passage, he begins to unpack all these blessings and what it means for us to endure the hardships of this life. A good God will make sure most definitely that his children will suffer. That we get the privilege to share, catch the language, share in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because there's benefit to them. First benefit we see in this passage is found in verses 3 through 5. 
The benefit is this, that we are comforted by the God of all comfort. That through our trials, we get to experience God in ways we don't without those trials in our lives. We get to know him more. We, we cling to him tighter. That he shows us his character and his might. That not only do we get to now share in these comfort, but now he says that, that because we have experienced the comfort of God, we get to comfort other people with the same comfort we received. Double blessing. Sufferings of God, we feel his comforts. But now we get to pass them on. Catch what it says in verses 3 through 5 with me. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, what we have to understand is there is a divine purpose in our sufferings. Catch this. Because there is a divine purpose in our sufferings that ensures us that there's a divine hand holding us through the sufferings as well. Paul says, I felt that hand. I mean, you, write, you, you read him, it's almost this worshipful tone in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's worshiping as he's writing this letter. He's amazed that his God would pour out his mercy. He's amazed at all the comfort he received. And you just keep reading the text, verses 9 through 11. We'll get there. But right now you need to understand he went through a difficult time in verse 9 through 11. And he's saying, I almost endured death itself. But because I was comforted, I was comforted. I received the comfort of God in ways I never imagined before. Because I received that, Now, that puts me in a position to pass that comfort on. Because I I was put in this trial and I was able to to be rescued, I saw his his rescuing power. It now put me in a position to pass that comfort on to other people. How does that happen? How do, do, when we receive the comfort of God, the God of all comfort, how are we able to pass the same comfort on? How are we, when we're put into position to, through, through hardships in this life, be put into position to be able to extend the same comfort we received by ourselves to other people? Well, C.S. Lewis, who said this, that friendship begins when we say, when we look at another person and says, you too? You, you went through that too? I, I thought I was the only one. You see, what he's saying there is he's, he's getting to the point that when, when somebody else is going through a different hardship, just like you, there's this sense of connection that immediately takes place. Again, you realize that you're not the only one who's gone through hardship. There's comfort in that. You're connected in this different level. You're, there's a sense of empathy that's passed on to you that you feel. And, and, and Paul says that's the comfort of God. That sometimes this God of all comfort, he's passing his comfort through his church His church family is able to comfort each other as they experience heartache. Now they're able to come along somebody else who's gone through something similar. And they're connected. And on the opposite side, as we go through hardships our life, in our own life, gives us a sense of empathy for other people. Empathy that we might not have had beforehand. Gets us a sense of humility. We're able to pass on this compassion because we're compassionate. We feel the empathy with the other person. And we're able to pass on that encouragement because we made it through. 
It's a testament that our God is still good even in the dark moments of our lives and we're able to share that with somebody else. Do you see the double blessing that takes place? Because as you receive this comfort, now you get to pass it on. This is what's taking place with Spurgeon's life. A book of, you read this book, I highly encourage you to, it's really short, it's called the Spurgeon's Sorrows. It's encouraging, it's uplifting. You read about his heartache and it encourages you. And the same thing takes place with Paul's suffering. Paul's saying, hey, I I suffered and I suffered greatly, but because of this, I'm able to comfort you, Corinthian church, and you in return to me. And as we read this letter now, we're comforted as well. Comforted through the the heartache and all the sufferings that Paul went through. See what he's trying to get us to see? That yes, there's a sense that I can comfort other people through my own heartache and the experiences I go through. That God uses my heartache to pass on his comfort to somebody else. Another fantastic book that I highly encourage you to read. It's by Dr. Robert uh, Muholland. It's called uh, uh, An Invitation to a Journey, A Roadmap to Spiritual Formation. Great book. This book, it gives us a great definition of what spiritual formation is. Dr. Robert Mulholland says this, spiritual formation is the process, it's a process, a long process, being conformed to the image of Christ. Catch this next part. Long process, being conformed to the image of Christ for the benefit of others. His definition is saying, hey, you're conformed to the image of Christ for the benefit of other people. You see, we, we live in such a, a, an individualistic culture It's always about us and ourselves, and we're only thinking about the individual so much so that when you and I have to face heartache and trials in this life, we only think about that trial and that suffering in an individualistic manner. It's only about us. You know, what Paul is trying to get us to see is open your eyes. That maybe that heartache that you're experiencing right now in your life is being used in somebody else's life. Maybe it's for, not even you, but it's for somebody else that they would be able to see God more. That they would be comforted by the God of all comfort. That they would come to be more conformed to the image of Christ. And what Paul is asking us is, are you willing to suffer for the other? Are you willing to go through heartache for somebody else that they would be able to see Jesus more in your life? Spurgeon, maybe he saw it, maybe he didn't. But I guarantee now that he's in heaven, he's seen all the blessings that that suffering took place. And I guarantee he's saying, it was all worth it. Is that how you view your suffering in your life? Told you it's radical, it's countercultural. Is that how you look at your sufferings in your life? First of all, he says, hey, we suffer because we get to comfort other people. But next he says that we suffer because it brings us to the end of our rope so that we can rely more on God's power. Look what it says next in our text, verses 6 through 9. It says, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is an unshaken, for we know that we share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. My last part is key. But that, that heartache, that sense of almost dying in Paul's life, he says that, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says he was allowed this heartache to get him to, to stop relying on himself so he can rely on God. This is drastically important in our lives. Dr. Robert Mulholland also says this, that we live in an objectifying society. What that means is that we believe the world is here for us to shape, for us to mold, for us to conquer. That we impose our will upon the world. This is kind of the way what William Ernest Henley would say in his poem Invictus, that I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the, 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 the kind of thinking that this American culture has bought into completely. We, we want to control all things. We believe humanity can conquer anything. And when you just keep on living this way, you begin to believe that you don't need God. In fact, William uh, Ernest Henley, he was a devout atheist. You read that poem, it was a, is it shaking his fist at a God who he thought didn't exist. Just read the last line. Here, here's the problem. It was uh, Charles Wendell who said this, the problem with ministry is we can learn how to do it. That same saying could be said of life. The problem with life is we can learn how to do it. And in our American culture, we've gotten pretty good at making our own living on our own, raising our own families on our own and doing things, not relying on God's power and his spirit to direct us, but relying on our own power. And again, if you keep living for that long, for any amount of time, you can convince yourself that you don't need God. But yet God in his grace... God in his mercy says, I, I, I know there's a tendency for you to drift away from my dependency that I'm calling you to. So I'm going to insert these trials and tribulations in your life that get you to stop relying on yourself and begin to, to stop holding on to the rope you're so tightly holding on to in your control. Release that and hold on to my rope. See, what God is asking his children to be is to be dependent. To, to walk through your daily life dependent upon him through through this constant prayer, calling out to him, God, I need you to help me love my wife in a greater degree. Give me patience with the kids. Give, allow me to, to work hard so that I'm working for you at the workplace. He's longing for us to be dependent creatures. And he brings these trials in our lives to teach us that dependency. See, when you're in the hospital bed, you don't think you can do it on your own any longer calling out to God for, for help. When you're going through the heartache, when the trouble's at home, you don't think you can do it anymore. The problem's in your marriage, you're thinking, man, I, I can't do it any longer. I need help. God inserts these trials out of his mercy, friends, to get us to stop relying on ourselves so we can cling to the rock of all ages. We're finite in our power. 
He's infinite in his power. We're finite in our wisdom. He, his wisdom knows no bounds. So why wouldn't we want to cling to him? And thankfully, he inserts these things in our lives to get us to see his power and his might. So yes, he allows these travels for our benefit, first of all, to, so we can feel the God of all comfort and share it with other people. Secondly, he inserts it so that we can stop relying on ourselves and begin to rely on his power. And lastly, he gets us so that we can have greater faith and greater hope in who he is. Because what he says at the end of this passage here in verses 10 through 11, he said he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he delivers us uh, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also, you also must help us in prayer so that, so that many will give thanks on behalf of, of, of uh, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. See, what, what Paul is driving home here is he's saying, hey, I've endured some heartache in some difficult times. I mean, you just keep reading in the book of 2 Corinthians, we'll get there. He begins to unclose these trials and these tribulations like he hasn't done in any of his other letters. How he is whipped and, and abused, the 39 lashes from the Jews. How he is thrown into prison many times through shipwrecks. And, and what he's saying in verses uh, nine through, uh, uh, 8 through 11 there is he's saying, I went through a, a time in Asia like I've never experienced it before. He said, I almost gave up on living. Man, this thing was so hard that, that I almost kind of gave up on, on wanting to survive myself. But then he says, but God delivered me. But, but, but God delivered me, and because he delivered me here, I know going forward in the future, he will deliver me again. What Paul is driving, this repetition, this kind of a harmony in which he writes, he says, hey, he delivered us in the past, he will deliver us, and he will deliver us again. So catch the repetition in that passage. He, he said he delivered us in the past. He delivered us then, he will deliver us now, and he will deliver us again. The idea here is Paul is saying, hey, you know that time four years ago when you're going through a time in which you didn't think you were going to make it through? God got you through it. And because God got you through that time, he will deliver you through the heartache and the pain that you're experiencing now. He's, he's saying, hey, because we go through heartache in the past, it propels us to have greater confidence in our God in the future and in the present. He almost pictures this confidence, this this, 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 this amount of faith and confidence, it comes from the Greek word. It, it means with faith. Confidence, co, uh, fide, faith in Latin, with faith. So, so what he's saying here is that when we go through heartaches in, 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 in the past, it propels us to know that God will get us through the trials in the present. He almost pictures it like this football player that's marching down the field. And as this football player has the ball and he's able to... to, to to literally just stiff-arm the defender coming his way, it gains him greater confidence moving on in the obstacle that comes before him. And as he's able to do that, as he misses the first tackler and he pushes aside the second and he bulldozers the third, it, it gains his confidence as he's running down the field with a greater amount of speed. So the same thing applies in our lives. Some God, sometimes God allows us to go through difficult times to gain our confidence in him. He got us through that. He will get us through the next thing and get us through the next thing and he will deliver us in the end. 
He says, even when the heartaches come, verse 11, he says, even when the heartaches come, we're okay with that. Why? Because we're going to ask you, Corinthian church, to pray for us. And the more people praying is a greater opportunity for the praises to reach the heavens. Catch that what he says in verse 11. He says, you, you, you also must help us in, by prayer so that by many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted to us through the prayers of many. Saying, hey, we're, we're okay with going through trials and tribulations. Again, other focused. Paul's other focused. Why? Because when the prayers of the church rise up, when God delivers me through that, they're able to praise all the more and greater praise comes to the glory of our God. Paul in this passage says that because our God is good, it proves the matter to the fact that he will allow us to go through the heartaches of this life. For the purpose that we would feel his comfort in ways that we probably wouldn't experience without the heartaches. That we'd pay, be able to pass that on to other people. That we too would would be able to, to stop relying on ourselves and begin to rely on him. And lastly, that we would be able to have greater confidence moving forward that, yes, he is the God who will deliver us. And, friends, he will always deliver us again. That's the great hope we have in the gospel, that even if the cancer has the last word in this life, it will not have the last word in the next. That even when the marriage is broken in this life, that God will will redeem that and allow us to be delivered again in heaven. That's the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we will always have the hope that he will deliver us again. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for your word. God, I attest that I would not be in this pulpit without Spurgeon's sorrows. They've helped me tremendously in this life. And they are a testament to the fact that you are a good God and uses every tear that falls from our cheeks for your purposes and your kingdom's sake. God, let your church feel that this morning. Get a room this size, I guarantee there are people who are suffering, that are going through the heartaches right now. And, and God, I pray that they would this morning feel the God of all comfort. And that we see your love that is proven to us upon the cross. Because you sent your son to die for us, it is a guarantee of how much you love us. And yes, that you will deliver us again. God, give them the, give them the, the, the strength to make it through. Let them see that, yes, in, you, in their weakness right now, that's when your power is demonstrated the most. God, as we, we move through this book, would you conform us to a countercultural way of looking at all things? Yes, we would rejoice in our weakness because that's when we feel your spirit the most. Be with your church. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.